Welcome to Cannabis Science Today. This is the podcast where we unearth the cutting edge science on cannabis that's typically only found in academic journals and bring it out into the light. My name is Emily Feda and I will be your guide as we converse with neuroscientists, psychologists, biologists, and physicians to learn more about cannabis as a plant and how it can be used as medicine. We are back for season two and we still have so much to learn about cannabis, so expect plenty of new content on that. But we're also going to be having a wider range of conversations this season and talking about some of the new research on plant-based medicines and psychedelics like psilocybin, ketamine, and ayahuasca. We also have some great interviews with anthropologists, and we're going to be exploring some of the societal and cultural elements surrounding the production and the use of cannabis and other alternative types of medicine. Today we are featuring Dr. Julie Holland, who is a psychiatrist specializing in psychopharmacology with a private practice in New York City. She is an expert in psychedelic research and the author of a number of books, most recently, Good Chemistry, The Science of Connection from Soul to Psychedelics. In this episode, she shares how we can use psychedelic medicines like cannabis, MDMA, and psilocybin to catalyze a connection with ourselves, our community, and even the natural world around us. We discuss why we're hardwired for connection, what happens to our brains when we are on psychedelics, and the difference between the recreational model of using psychedelics and the medical one. I cannot recommend her book enough, and if you're interested in reading it, you can go to naturalmood.com. Dr. Holland, you are a psychiatrist, you have a private practice, and you've also written a number of books. So, so tell me more about your story, and, and what was the spark for your latest book, Good Chemistry? So, yes, I do. I have a private practice in New York City, um, and uh, you know, I went to undergrad at Penn Med School at Temple. I did my psych residency at Mount Sinai in New York City, and then after Sinai, I spent nine years. Um, working weekends, basically every Saturday night and Sunday night, I ran the psyche ER at Bellevue hospital. Um, so one of the first books that I wrote was, was called weekends at Bellevue. It was basically a memoir about my nine years there. Um, but a couple other books that I did early on, I actually didn't, uh, I don't like to say that I'm the author because I was, I was the editor. I sort of put the books together, but I assigned a lot of chapters to people. So the very first book I ever did that way was, was a book about MDMA. Uh, it's called Ecstasy, The Complete Guide. And my reason for doing that book and putting it together was that this, to me, was, a, was an illegal drug, a Schedule One drug, but there were very clear medical indications and, and indications for its being used in psychiatry. Um, as a catalyst to help therapy go better. So my my first book project was taking this uh, prohibited Schedule One drug and showing, hey, this could be a medicine. So um, my second uh, sort of nonprofit book project where I was the editor and not the author was a book called The Pot Book, A Complete Guide to Cannabis. And that's where I really learned a lot more about cannabis and got sort of more comfortable uh, with using it as a medicine, with talking to my patients about it. And again, it was a situation where we had a schedule one drug, a drug that was illegal, that couldn't be prescribed, couldn't be, you know, uh, grown or shared with other people. And, uh, to me, there was tremendous medical use. So, um, those were my two sort of nonprofit babies. All, all the proceeds from those books fund clinical research. Um, and then I wrote a book before my very last one. The fourth one that I wrote was a, was a book for women. Um, 
sort of championing them to be emotional, to have a sort of fluid emotional state that it was okay to be sad or angry or cry or, uh, or even to be depressed, that it didn't mean that they needed to be medicated. We don't have to pathologize and medicate away every emotion that we're having. And so that book is called Moody Bitches. Um, and, and the subtitle for Moody Bitches was the truth about the drugs you're taking, the sleep you're missing, the sex you're not having, and what's really making you crazy. Um, and what's really making people crazy, you know, my sort of what I posited at, at the end of Moody Bitches is the thing that's really making you crazy is that you are disconnected from your body. You are disconnected from nature. You know, we are operating in a place where we're not really fully embodied. We're spending a lot of time just in our heads, sort of going off on tangents, and we're leaving the present moment. We're leaving our bodies. We're leaving our relationships. We're leaving, uh, you know, our parenting responsibilities. We're disconnecting with nature. We're just sort of floating off, you know, in in the Twitter sphere or on Facebook or texting. Um, and I really think that it's creating a lot of pathology. So Good Chemistry, my most recent book, is really just a continuation of that discussion of how disconnected we are, where I talk more specifically about um, how our bodies are, how our chemistry is, and how we feel when we are connected versus when we are disconnected. And just giving lots of examples to show people that the anxiety they're feeling, the depression they're feeling, a lot of it just comes from this feeling of disconnection, feeling of not belonging, um, not, not being subsumed in something bigger than us. And so when you have cannabis or as, as one might experience cannabis or as I experience cannabis, one of the things that I get is that I feel more connected to my body and I feel more sort of grounded. I, I pay more attention to my posture and the way I'm holding my body. And I pay more attention to like being physically grounded to the planet. If I happen to be lucky enough to be uh, experiencing cannabis while I am outside in nature, then I feel much more connected with nature, more appreciative of nature, and even feel like I am more a part of nature. So Good Chemistry talks about this feeling connected, um, either feeling like everything is connected and you are a part of it, or just feeling connected to something or someone. Um, and that that's the thing that really feeds us, uh, that makes us feel good, uh, and that keeps us healthy. And all the disconnection we're experiencing is part of the reason why we all feel so miserable. Mm-hmm. I know that's a long answer. But yeah. No, but I, I think that's I think that's um, really useful, and I really like how in the book. I mean, you of course it it starts off as saying, okay, we're really suffering from loneliness and disconnection, but there's no prescriptive. The prescriptive advice is not to go out and hang out with a bunch of people. So it's really about going inward first, connecting with ourselves, and then we can go outwards and connect within our communities and nature and and even the cosmos. So so I'm wondering, first of all, do you think kind of this this feeling of disconnection and loneliness is a by Product of the modern world. I know you talked about technology and living in cities, living away from our families and villages. Or is this just like a natural human feeling that people have experienced from the beginning of time? Yeah, well, it's both. It's both. And and the thing is, if you want to talk about the beginning of time and feeling connected or feeling like you belong, you know, back when we were cave people. Um, if you weren't accepted into your community, if you somehow got expelled or ostracized from your community that likely meant a death sentence. You know, you were going to get picked off if you're not in the herd or people aren't going to share food with you or they're not going to help you build a shelter. You're not going to make it alone. 
you know, maybe now you can make it alone and you can just be isolated and be a hermit. But back then, um, on a very primal level, if you were not accepted by the group, you were not going to survive. And I believe that we still have that primal based sort of fear that kicks in when mm-hmm. we're afraid that we're not connected or when we're disconnected with people. But it's um, almost a little bit more complex in the modern era because we don't have to be accepted by one group. Like you don't necessarily have to be accepted by your hometown where you grew up. You can go out into the world and find new communities and new connections. So, so does that make it more challenging? Well, you know, in good chemistry, I talk about all these different ways that you can connect and you can connect with yourself and your body, or you can connect with a partner, or you can create a family and connect with your children, um, or you can connect within community or to nature or the cosmos. So in the community chapter, um, I do talk about how really hardwired we are to be sensitive to social cues and to make sure we belong. And I think a really good example is if if you're on a Zoom call and there's like 12 faces on your screen, there's some part of your brain that is continually scanning these faces to make sure that all the social cues that are going on, you're still in good standing and you're not going to get expelled from the group. Yeah. Um, and you know it's one of the reasons why we're so exhausted after these after like multiple zoom calls is mm-hmm. because there's a certain like it's almost like an app that's always running in the background where your eyes are scanning for social cues and and now with masks you know when we go out and everybody is masked up and you can only see their eyes it's hard to tell you know if somebody is squinting or they're smiling at you or they're grimacing or they're yawning and so even i would say uh, unfortunately now in real space, maybe even more than a Zoom call, we have that sort of panic of not being able to read social cues and not getting uh, the reassurance that we are safe and that we are accepted in the group. And it really does take its toll mentally. And I would say even biologically, you know, that that if you're worried you're going to get expelled from the group, then by definition, you are in this sort of fight or flight place. You are going to be in the sympathetic mode. You are going to have an increase of adrenaline and cortisol. And if you stay in the fight or flight mode long enough, it's really going to take its toll on your body. And I think that, you know, we're, we're learning about this more and more, right? That it's, mm-hmm. it's not good to be in survival mode all the time. It's not good to be bathed in cortisol all the time, but not everybody is talking about, okay, well, what do we do about it? And so good chemistry, it was really important for me to educate people. Okay. Everybody's heard of sympathetic. Everybody's heard of fight or flight why don't we talk about what the opposite is and what the goal is? Okay. Oh yeah. You don't want fight or flight. What do we want? And so good chemistry explains that the opposite of the sympathetic nervous system and the thing that sort of travels alongside the para, the, the sympathetic nervous system is something called the parasympathetic nervous system. And as opposed to fight or flight, the parasympathetic system is much more about staying, not running away, making connections, resting, digesting. And really importantly, it's the only time your body can really repair itself. You know, when we're in fight or flight, the body does not run any of its sort of self-repair mechanisms. It just runs on empty because it assumes that once you're resting and sleeping, it'll be able to clean up and do the repairs. But if you're constantly spinning your wheels and you're and you're always in fight or flight, you're not sleeping well, you're not digesting well, your body can't repair itself. And the other big thing is you have terrible social skills when you're in fight or flight. 
you know, when you get, when you get sort of panicky or, or like, let's say you're, you're afraid of snakes and you're in the woods and you see a snake and you know, you kind of freeze or scream or like, you don't have good social skills in that moment. You know, if you're, if you're trying to put out a fire in your kitchen, you're not going to pick up the phone and call your mom, you know? So it's, Uh, It really is true that when we're in fight or flight, we are not open to connecting. We are less trusting. It takes more for us to bond, cooperate, collaborate. And so unfortunately, one of the things that's happening now is that the, the more isolated we are, the more our bodies are in fight or flight. And the more our bodies are in fight or flight, the worse our social skills are, the more isolated we're going to become. So it is one of those, you know, a snake eating its own tail where it's hard to tell what came first. But I would say that cell phones and Twitter and Facebook and TikTok and all these things that sort of keep us swiping, 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 those are things that keep us disconnected from our bodies, from nature, from each other, from ourselves, from the present moment. You know, it's all this escaping and going elsewhere. And it's not, it's just not good for our bodies or, or dare I say, it's not good for our souls. Yeah. So in this current, and you give a lot of good tips throughout the book about getting into the parasympathetic nervous system and finding ways to access that state, but do you think kind of this current state of the world with the pandemic and the isolation that we're all experiencing, um, do you think that just organically, naturally, we're all finding ourselves in that fight or flight mode just because we aren't getting those social cues that we're accustomed to or that we need? Yeah, I definitely think, and you can see it in that there's an increase, there's an uptick in self-soothing behaviors, right? Mm-hmm. We feel a little a little lonely, a little isolated, a little disconnected, uh, a lot fearful. You know, I mean, the people in, in my private practice who I speak to, they're not just fearful of contagion and the pandemic, they're fearful that our democracy is crumbling. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're, or, or, the, the, or I would say, and and they may not be in touch with it, but if you start to talk about it, they're like, yeah, I have that. That they, they're almost like they're grieving. They're grieving for what we're doing to each other. They're grieving for what we're doing to the planet. You know, and so if you if you just start to talk a little bit about anxiety or grief or sadness, you know, people really well up. There's a lot there. So I do think that this is happening. You know, the past six months, we're definitely seeing more. Uh, well, I mean, you know, the quarantini has sort of taken on a life of its own. <laughs> Some people are oh, definitely, sure. you know, sort of drinking more than they would typically drink. Other people are gaining weight. They're eating, you know, I, I'm doing this too. You know, I'm eating potato chips and chocolate. I don't, you know, that's not me. That's not how I usually am, but it's how I am now. You know, I'm snacking to soothe myself. I'm watching, you know, baking shows to soothe myself, which I would never do in the past. Oh, so I, I know. So I know that there's something going on where I feel I need more soothing, you know, mm-hmm. and the way that we usually get soothed, um, you know, some of it is just that somebody holds us and, and sort of pets us and strokes us and says, you know, you're going to be okay and I'm going to look after you. So a lot of us aren't getting that sort of physical reassurance from other people. You know, we're not getting even just like a, a, a sort of a smile from a stranger because we're all wearing masks. So you, you do end up feeling uh, more isolated and just, you know, because of this sort of cave person kind of, uh, I hate to use this, this terminology, you know, this wiring, this programming, um, you know, it's genetically sort of baked in that not only are we going to be anxious if we're contained, if we are 
possibly, you know, fear of contagion is also built in, you know, and then this fear of sort of social isolation that we are, that we're alone, you know, I mean, being, being lonely and being sad, you know, uh, a few years ago, like there were things you could do about it. You could still like, well, walk outside your door and go, you know, go to church, go to a 12 step meeting, go to a movie, like there's people around, go walk in the park, you know, and now those, those sort of tricks don't really work. Um, and, and it's true. Good chemistry is full of tricks of how to get yourself into the parasympathetic mode. Um, and I imagine your listeners will be happy to learn that one of the things I spend a tremendous amount of time talking about in good chemistry is talking about cannabis and how cannabis, uh, for many of us, it does put us in this parasympathetic mode where we can rest, where we have a little bit of downtime, where, where our food digests better, our stomach works better, right? I mean, people are using cannabis for all sorts of GI issues. It's not a coincidence. You know, yes, it's anti-inflammatory. And also, I would say being in the parasympathetic state in and of itself is anti-inflammatory. So anybody who's trying to sort of uh, adopt all the good, healthy lifestyles of somebody who's, you know, having an anti-inflammatory diet and doing things like yoga or meditation because they're anti-inflammatory or they're taking probiotics. I tell those people, well, you should consider adding cannabis, which is an anti-inflammatory medicine, or at least taking CBD, which has anti-inflammatory effects. Like if you're really interested in in fighting inflammation, I think you're really obligated to consider uh, cannabinoid-based medicines like whole plant cannabis or like CBD, if you really can't have any THC in your system for some reason, that these are things that are anti-inflammatory and that help to put you in the parasympathetic mode where all these other things can happen, where your metabolism can get regulated and your sleep can get regulated. So, um, you know, it's not a coincidence that cannabis does so many different things to make you feel better or help you. It is because a lot of those things are under sort of the umbrella of parasympathetic tone. So when you are in parasympathetic, all these other good things to your body start to happen, like your your immune system works better, your metabolism works better, and the inflammation is less. So, um, you know, to me, cannabis is really uh, sort of the, the cornerstone or a, a basic foundation of an anti-inflammatory sort of regimen or, or you know, wellness lifestyle. And I think also a really good, um, I, I don't want to say substitute for connection, but I think a really good way to get into the parasympathetic nervous system in, in ways that we don't necessarily have access to right now in the pandemic. Right. So, and um, we don't, we don't have access to sort of calming ourselves through uh, social gatherings. Um, but Certainly, many of us are calming ourselves with with food or with alcohol or with Netflix um, or with cannabis. And you know, I uh, I I practice harm reduction. You know, in in my private practice in psychiatry, I really focus on harm reduction, um, which is first of all that I do not uh, shame people or blame people if they, however, they are soothing themselves. Um, I accept that they have pain that needs soothing. And, you know, Gabor Mate, who's a great psychiatrist and addiction expert, and, you know, his motto is, don't ask why the addiction, ask why the pain. Focus on the pain. Focus on what is causing people to want to escape. You know, the, the however people choose to escape, you know, there, there are people who compulsively masturbate. There are people who scrapbook. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's something that they're doing to soothe themselves. And, 
you need to look at what's driving the self-soothing behavior mm-hmm. and not get so hung up on what the self-soothing behavior is because we all have self-soothing behaviors. And the trick is to just try to make them a little less damaging to ourselves. So my patients who are having problems with alcohol, I really encourage them actually to explore things like CBD or other cannabis-based medicines because it is better for their bodies. It's healthier for them. They're less impaired, really. Uh, I mean, somebody who is drunk or who's stoned, there's just so many more things you can do uh, when you are when you've had cannabis in your system versus when you've had a lot of alcohol in your system. So, mm-hmm. um, and obviously, you know, alcohol is really toxic to the liver and the brain, and cannabis isn't. So, um, I'm always trying to substitute less toxic behaviors for the ones that people are getting hung up on. Mm-hmm. And you talk about a lot of different psychedelics through the book. So, cannabis, of course, but also MDMA, psilocybin, and ayahuasca. So, I'm wondering because there are so many different ways to feel disconnected, you know, and there are people living alone in cities, like with no family or, or very small, very limited social networks. But then there's also potentially the new mother who has, has a family but doesn't have, you know, isn't having adult conversations around. So, yeah. so I'm wondering because there's so many ways we can feel disconnected in your research and in your practice, do you start to, have you started to notice patterns emerge or sinking certain molecules or certain psychedelics as, as the best kind of medicine to treat a certain type of disconnection? Well, you know, I do have a bit of a self-selecting group in my practice, you know, because I have a book on, on MDMA and because I've been involved with, with MAPS, which is a group that's running the, the multi-center MDMA trials, um, I do have people come to my practice who have specific questions about psychedelics. They know that I'm comfortable talking about them and I know a lot about them. And you know, the bottom line is that a lot of people are doing things like going to ayahuasca circles or trying microdosing with with psilocybin or LSD or they're having macrodoses, you know, large doses that create sort of a, a peak mystical experience. Um, you know, these things are always going on. And what's important to me is that um, people do them more safely. And the only way to be safer is to have more education and more information. So I do talk about these things as as potentially ways to feel more connected. You know, um, the, the way that good chemistry is sort of set up is that each chapter sort of expands to a bigger and bigger thing that you connect to. So the first chapter is just the self and the body, and the second chapter is connecting to one person. The third chapter is about creating a family. Fourth chapter is all about connecting within community. The fifth chapter is all about connecting with nature. And then the last chapter is where I talk about feeling connected with the the universe, the cosmos, you know, this, this sense that everything is connected um, and that you're sort of jacked into this huge universe and that, you know, you are a smaller part of something bigger. And now we know that when there's a feeling of awe, that when you feel small because you're looking at something big, we know that that is like an exquisite state of openness when you are really open to learning new things and potentially open to changing things about your behavior. And, and we know that when people have these psychedelic mystical experiences, um, that they, they get to a peak experience place where they feel very connected to something bigger than them. And there is this sense of awe at how immense the universe is, um, and how small you are. And, and, and that awe and that sense of smallness, but belonging to something big, it does quite a few things. And one of the things it does, which I love, is, is it can tamp down the narcissism a little bit um, that it's all about you. 
Um, you start realizing that, you know, we are all tiny little bugs on this huge rock that's hurtling through space and that we are really all in this together. And you get rid of some of the us versus them thinking that can be really apparent um, in our sort of social interactions. Um, and that, I would say also, this us versus them thing and like how polarized the United States of America is right now, um, that also really takes its toll. You know, that there, there are a lot of people who are sort of empathically connected to others and don't like to feel disconnected. And so, you know, I mean, I have this too, and like, you know, I live in a very small town um, and there are a lot of people here who have very different feelings about what's going on politically and socially. Um, and it's like physically uncomfortable to feel like you're on the, you know, the other side from what your neighbor is on. So I do think that there is a lot of disconnection and a lot of feelings of disconnection lately. And I do see, um, psychedelic experiences and mystical experiences and any experience of awe, um, Anytime you feel small and something bigger is sort of subsuming you, that is that is a, an opportunity for deep healing to happen, and um, and also neuroplasticity. You know, I, this is something I talk about quite a bit in Good Chemistry. That that the brain actually will sort of rewire itself, and new connections will form, and even new brain cells, new neurons can form. Some of these psychedelics. Um, they engender what's called neurogenesis. So they, they enable new brain cells to be formed or they enable new connections to be formed um, or they enable like the circuits to sort of run a different way. You know, there's the, the fault mode network of how we usually think about ourselves, which is very kind of self-absorbed and self-serving and who am I and how am I doing? Um, but when you're when you're having a peak experience with psychedelics, that default mode network gets really quieted down, and there's an ego dissolution, and the and the usual circuits of me and mine, and 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 the people I care about, and the stuff I care about, all that stuff sort of gets quieted, and those circuits get disrupted, and more importantly, it gives the brain a chance where a lot of parts that weren't communicating can start to communicate. So it, there's this increased connectivity in the brain between different areas that happens with psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's the chance for the brain to sort of, you know, step outside the box and, and stretch a little bit and, and potentially um, change the way that it, that it does business and the way that it's connected. And that's why you're seeing uh, the psilocybin research happening with, with sort of uh, patients who have cognitive rigidity, right? Where they think like, this is this and this will never be that. You know, they're very cognitive, they're very rigid about, about their cognitions and their thoughts. So you see this with, for instance, anorexia nervosa, right? Like these people, they're convinced they're fat and they have to be thinner. No matter how thin they are, they still think they're fat. It's this cognitive rigidity where you cannot convince them otherwise. Um, and you also see this sometimes in obsessive compulsive disorder where like things have to be done a certain way. Everything has to line up a certain way. I have to count to three a certain number of times. It's cognitive rigidity. So in anorexia, in body dysmorphic disorder, in obsessive compulsive disorder. And I would say also in addiction, you know, you've got this sort of rigid way of doing things, this rigid way of thinking. And if you can take uh, a catalyst that helps to increase flexibility, cognitive flexibility, and to, and to have your brain try it a different way, you know, you've been like going around in circles doing the same thing for 30 years. Why don't you take, take the needle off to the record and like, try a different way of doing things. So these, 
these plant medicines, these consciousness medicines, um, have the capacity to disrupt the cognitive rigidity, rigidity um, and create some flexibility. Uh, and I would say that we need cognitive flexibility now more than ever, pretty much everywhere you look. That you know, we're getting all sort of dug in and locked in the very particular ways of thinking about things and labeling things. And you know, as you're an expert in something, you're not open to learning anything new. And I think it's better if we approach things from uh, the sort of beginner's mind and not knowing and, and curiosity and what can I learn about this? And, and psychedelics allow that. You know, everything you thought you knew is gone and you can approach something and, and look at it from its very essence without all your preconceived notions being projected onto it. And I would also say that, that cannabis does that too. You know, that um, it, it sort of gives you uh, fresh eyes and you can look at things a little differently. Um, and that can be incredibly helpful uh, when, you, when you're getting stuck and when you're getting rigid in your thoughts or your behavior. Yeah, absolutely. So in the book, you also talk about the 5-HT2A receptor or the psychedelic receptor. And I thought it was really fascinating that, um, so this it's a serotonin receptor, but it's activated with nearly every type of psychedelic. So from cannabis to psilocybin to DMT. So yeah, so could you talk about this receptor and kind of what, what is happening when we are on these medicines? And right, why, so, yeah, why does it, why does it work with every, you know, every single one of these plants? Well, I mean, you know, one of the, there's a few things that I was trying to figure out that I did manage to figure out for good chemistry. And it made me really happy because the the original title of this book was, it was actually going to be called One, O-N-E, A Unified Theory of Connection. And the unified theory was that I was trying to figure out how oxytocin was involved in every aspect of oneness. But I was having trouble with a few things because um, we know that MDMA increases oxytocin and we know that orgasm and childbirth and and nursing a baby lactation these are all very high oxytocin states right and oxytocin is basically you know the way we talk about adrenaline and cortisol as being the 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 chemistry that sort of runs fight or flight if you really had to pin the parasympathetic and rest digest and repair if you had to give that one neurotransmitter or hormone i would say that it's oxytocin primarily that is involved with parasympathetic and so I know that MDMA enhances oxytocin, but I was having trouble figuring out how cannabis affected oxytocin, and I wasn't finding anything at all with how psychedelics affected oxytocin, and I was getting sort of stuck. But it turns out that the 5-HT2A, the serotonin 2A receptor, which is the one that's really implicated in in the mechanism of action of almost every psychedelic you can think of, except uh, things like ketamine and and PCP and things that are that are more glutamate oriented. But most of the classical psychedelics, um, LSD, psilocybin, and then also things like ayahuasca, DMT, 5-MeO DMT, all these things affect the serotonin. 2A receptor, the 5-HT2A receptor. So sometimes you'll hear it called the psychedelic receptor, but obviously it, it doesn't only work with psychedelics, but nearly all the psychedelics do work through this receptor. But I was having trouble figuring out what the connection was between the 5-HT2A and oxytocin. And it turns out that when the 5-HT2A gets stimulated enough, it forms a receptor complex with the oxytocin receptor, that they actually, they form what's called a dimer. They dimerize. The 5-HT2A and the, and the oxytocin receptor <clears throat> dimerize. And that is how you can get crosstalk mm-hmm. between um, 
the whole sort of serotonergic neurotransmitter system and the oxytocin neurotransmitter system. Oxytocin is a hormone and a neurotransmitter. It's, it, it does more than double duty. I mean, it's really uh, like a utility player and it's responsible for all sorts of things. But this feeling of connection um, where, you can, where you're open and trusting and bonding that is enabled by oxytocin. And, you know, I knew that at the peak of a psychedelic experience, this sense that you're connected to everything and everything is connected and it's all connected by love and this kind of like, you know, lovey-dovey, we're all one kind of everything is love, you know, and it's, it's hard to put into words because a, a mystical experience by definition is hard to put into words. Mm-hmm. And, um, but this, I, I just intuitively knew that oxytocin must be involved, but I wasn't seeing anything direct, you know, that LSD increases oxytocin or, or psilocybin does. But now that I understand that there is a sort of crosstalk um, and that these two receptors, oxytocin and 5-HT2A, actually form a receptor complex, which is called a dimer. Now that I understand that, it's easier for me to to sort of make sense of that feeling of connection that comes with psychedelics. Yeah. And is this, um, is this dimmerization, um, is this unique to a psychedelic experience? Because I know, you know, there's other types of mystical experiences like through meditation or maybe a runner's high, or there's so right. many ways, you know, to increase serotonin or um, oxytocin or dopamine in the brain all, all at once. But is this dimmerization, is this unique to psychedelics or are there other ways to achieve this? No, I mean, the other, the other dimmerization that occurs is actually, with with cannabis and 5-HT2A. This, you know, one of the reasons that I absolutely insist that cannabis is a psychedelic, uh, besides, you know, the obvious thing is that it is mind manifesting. Um, it does a lot of things that, that psychedelics do, but also the if you have enough THC, you do end up getting stimulation of this 5-HT2A receptor, the psychedelic receptor. So pharmacologically, I think it's fair to say that at least high dose um cannabis or hashish is going to give you this sort of psychedelic experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I forgot what you just asked me and I feel like I answered partially. Yeah, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just wondering, it sounds like there's a, this new receptor forming when you're on psychedelics. And I'm wondering if that is com- unique to psychedelics or if that there are other ways to achieve that. So, I mean, you know, the 5-HT2A receptor is always around and always, always gets stimulated to some degree by serotonin. So it's just that it, get, it gets massively stimulated by psychedelics. But I think it's fair, you know, you mentioned meditation and you also mentioned like running or a runner's high. And I think it's important and your, your listeners may already know this. Uh, but we always thought that the runner's high was endorphins and, and, you know, like the body's internal opiates. And it turns out really what's more likely is that the runner's high really is coming from the, the endocannabinoid system, um, and not the endorphins, but the body's internal cannabis like molecules. Mm -hmm. So, um, I'm, I am a big proponent of any kind of cardio and I encourage my patients to run or do cardio unless, I feel like they're already in fight or flight so much of the time. And then I think it's much better that they focus on things like yoga and meditation and don't worry about running on a treadmill because it's just going to, their body's going to think they're running after a tiger basically. And it's just going to squirt out more adrenaline, you know, and it's just like the last thing you knew, the last thing that you need. Um, But I, you know, I'm a big fan of the runner's high. I am definitely a runner. Um, I, uh, I like to, you know, remind people there's there's a, a researcher whose name is Greg Gerdeman, who's done a lot a lot of research in this issue of of the runner's high really being 
the endocannabinoid system and not the endorphin system. And it's, it's pretty, it's pretty convincing stuff. Um, so I think that there are, you know, one of the things I talk about in good chemistry is that everybody sort of has their own proprietary blend. You know, I mean, you, you mentioned like dopamine or endocannabinoids or 5-HC2A or oxytocin, you know, everybody's got their own sort of feel good chemistry that squirts when they have an experience that makes them feel good. And, you know, one of the things I learned about, about oxytocin and, and social, social cue recognition is that, is that when oxytocin makes us feel good, like let's say somebody hugs you or holds you or, or pats you on the back and says, you know, I've got your back, I'm going to take care of you. When you have that feel good feeling, that is pretty much mediated by the endocannabinoid system. So it may be that if you are priming your endocannabinoid system by using cannabis or CBD, um, that you will have a, a, even a more pleasurable response to any kind of social interactions or any of the things that would typically give you pleasure. Yeah. So you talk about um, SSRIs throughout the book, and I know that was a big part of your other book, Moody Bitches. So, um, and, you, and you talk about how these might have long-term effects on the brain that we don't necessarily know about. So I'm wondering if you could talk about what do psychedelics accomplish that SSRIs do not? And do you usually recommend that patients try psychedelics before SSRIs, or are there certain patients who are a better candidate for that kind of pharmaceutical medication versus a um, psychedelic experience. Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot here to unpack. There's there's quite a few things. Um, I barely know where to start. The first thing I will start is a, is a metaphor that I, I talk a lot about, a lot, which is, um, uh, to me, the daily dose of SSRIs for some people, it's kind of like just sweeping the dirt under the carpet. You know, it's not it's not going to get you more connected with your body or your community or your family. It's just going to make it so that you don't mind being disconnected. Mm -hmm. And if you have trauma, if you have things that you need to work through, it's possible that all these psychiatric medicines that we give people just make it harder to work through the trauma. And it's, it's sort of more distant and you can't even really feel it. Mm -hmm. Um, there are some people who've got a, a pretty significant history of childhood trauma and they've been on antidepressants for years or anti-anxiety meds or mood stabilizers or antipsychotics, sleeping pills, all this stuff that they're trying to sort of manage. And the truth is some of those people would really be better served by not being on all these meds and by having um, you know, supervised psychedelic assisted psychotherapy so that they could be supported in really digging through and processing a lot of the childhood trauma that's causing a lot of the problems. You know, so to me, it's just the psychedelics get to a more fundamental cause of, of the anxiety, of the depression. Now, I know that there are some people who have terrible anxiety or terrible depression who have no history of childhood trauma and they are insisting that it's really purely chemical. And that may be true. And then you can have a, a purely chemical uh, treatment but you need to take it every single day. And, you know, th these antidepressants, you know, I wrote about this a lot in Moody Bitches. Um, and, and there's also a book I recommend sometimes called A Mind of Her Own that really is, is very anti-medicine. Um, but, you know, they're not completely benign. First of all, they really were designed to be taken for like six weeks or six months, and then you taper off and you stop. But mostly when people take antidepressants now, they take them for years or for decades and they don't stop because it's, a little uncomfortable to taper off and a lot of people don't taper off. So 
um, it's, it is possible that if you have one or two or three very intense, thorough debriefing sessions where you really look at your childhood trauma um, with the help of something like MDMA-assisted psychotherapy or psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy, it is possible that after these experiences, you do not need to take a daily dose of your medicines anymore. So if somebody comes to me and they've never been on medicines, I'm not going to like rush to tell them that, you know, psychedelics are the answer and this is where you should start. I mean, more often what happens is people have been trying for years and still feel lousy and don't understand why these medicines aren't working better. And then I start to say, maybe we should think about other things and other, other ways that you can feel better. And, you know, obviously I have to say that, um, these are research medicines right now. They're not legal to use right now, um, you know, unless you are in a, a research setting. So my patients don't have a ton of options. I mean, you know, one of the reasons I recommend ketamine every once in a while is because ketamine is legal and you have access to it and your insurance might even pay for it. So, and also ketamine at least gives you uh, an opportunity to have some sort of altered state experience or psychedelic experience. And you might start to get a sense that you have some trauma that needs to be processed, or you may even be able to process some of that trauma with ketamine. So yeah. um, I thought that was an interesting, is, yeah, I thought that was an interesting part of the book. You even talk about a patient who just had a powerful experience on Adderall. So, so some, I think some, maybe for some people, there is just some, some sense of just being able to get out of their own, like the way that their brain has been functioning for so many years and just switch it up a little bit that allows that, that alteration that allows them to see things differently. Like even introducing that as a possibility to some people sounds like it can be powerful. Yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, I, it's not a conversation I usually lead, you know, it's like somebody's coming to me and asking me and saying, you know, I've tried this, that, and the other thing. And now I want to know, you know, and can you tell me about ayahuasca? Can you tell me about about you know microdosing and then and then the issue is for some of these people they've been on medicines a long time and maybe the medicines they're taking aren't compatible with things like ayahuasca because you you can't there's a bunch of medicines you can't be on if you're taking ayahuasca um and and it's sort of preferred if you're not taking other medicines if you're going to uh try large doses of of classical psychedelics or even microdosing but certainly people are mixing meds with microdosing. This is like a wild open area. Uh, sorry, a wide open area where I guess I'm thinking like the wild west. We don't know a ton about, about these interactions, you know, the prescription medicines with the psychedelics. There's a lot that we don't know about interactions. And it may be like, for instance, uh, lithium can make uh, LSD much more intense. And SSRIs tend to make... Uh, the psychedelics less intense. Uh, you can't be on SSRIs if you want to have MDMA because it won't work. And then there is some talk that even if you get off the SSRI to try the MDMA, it still may not work as well simply because you've been on SSRIs for years and um, things have changed and the, and the sort of homeostasis has shifted in your brain and your receptors. And so it may be... And I, this is something we're looking at. This is a this is a paper that is is impressed, but is not yet being um, published, but will be, where we're starting to look at this terrifying issue, as far as I'm concerned, that it may be that the longer you're on antidepressants, the less psychedelics and MDMA are going to work for you. Right, um, that is devastating. 
And that would really be terrible that, you know, it turns out people were being, you know, treated to the best of our ability for the last 10 or 20 years. But now that we know we have something better for them, not everybody's going to respond. It's, it's not completely clear if this is the case or not, but I, I'm a little worried that it may be the case. At least what we know is uh, the more time that you wait coming off the SSRIs before you do these other things, probably the the bigger the response you're going to have. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I have to sort of issue a caveat that coming off of antidepressants is extremely complicated. You really need to do it with somebody who knows how to do it, knows how to do it very slowly. And uh, sometimes you have to go a little bit slower as the taper goes on. You can start off a little, a little bit more abruptly, but once you get lower, you have to go a little bit slower. So it is uh, dangerous to come off of meds, psych meds that you've been on for a long time. It definitely should be done uh, under the under the supervision of somebody who really, really knows what they're doing. And it also may be that it's not good for you to come off meds. And, you know, you have to consider that if you have bipolar disorder, if you have schizophrenia, that it may be that it is much, much too dangerous for you to come off the meds. And right now this isn't really a good option for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So I want to talk about the integration period after taking psychedelics. Um, and I guess there's a couple of different pieces here. But but first, I'm wondering, because I know with certain uh, substances, and especially MDMA, there's kind of that um, that heavy dip in serotonin or dopamine after the experience. And I, in Amsterdam, where there's like a big rave scene, they call it the Din's Dog Dip, which is like Tuesday through, to, you know, right. after the Saturday night in the club. So right. I'm wondering right. when, when MDMA is used in a medical, you know, is used in this research, um, is used in these therapeutic settings, does the patient still experience this heavy come down? Um, what's responsible for that? And is that inevitable, you know, or so they it, mitigate this? It's interesting, but I mean, I appreciate that the folklore is that, you know, you crash on Tuesday, but I will say that in most of the, of the studies that we did, we did not see a dip in mood. You know, these are people with post-traumatic stress disorder who were having MDMA assisted psychotherapy sessions to work through their trauma. They did not have a dip, um, you know, in the day's post and also people with alcoholism and Ben's SESA study also, they did not see a dip. So I think, I don't know if it's a byproduct of the, you know, that you just like went out carousing for a night or two in a row and you didn't get much sleep. Um, or if it's just that these are people who are taking it repeatedly. And, um, when you take MDMA repeatedly, things get sort of worse and worse for you. So, um, that's you true. Know, I actually didn't connect it with the sleep because obviously if you're taking it on a Saturday night, you're missing an entire night of sleep and that could be partially responsible or related to it. Versus yeah. So I, I will say that, that like in the medical model versus a recreational model, that is one difference, mm-hmm. right? That, yeah. that in the research setting, we are not seeing the dip. But the other thing in the recreational model is you don't know for sure whether people are getting MDMA or something else. And how often are they taking it? Are they overheating? You know, are they are they not drinking enough water? Are they drinking too much water? You know, there's a lot of risks in in the recreational model that you don't find in the medical model, mm-hmm. um, and that's really important to sort of cop to. You know, yeah, I think the, the water, buying, yeah, the hydration. That's really interesting. How is that monitored in the medical model? Well, in the medical model, there's no overhydration. People are sitting and they're talking about their trauma and maybe they have a little bit of water, but they're not chugging water. You know, overhydration is when when people drink like a gallon of water with MDMA and and that is extremely dangerous. Like if you or I right now drink a gallon of water, we will pee a gallon of pee and that's fine and we can go on with our lives. But if you take MDMA and you drink a gallon of water, 
you could die. Um, it, there's such a disturbance in salt water balance with MDMA where you really, it's like you're retaining fluids. It's like you're premenstrual or something and you're totally retaining fluids. So, and actually premenstrual women, I think are at a higher risk of overhydration than other women or other men, because you, when you're premenstrual, you naturally keep, you retain water. Like fluid retention is one of the PMS symptoms. And it's one of the reasons that you have PMS symptoms in the first place. So, um, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to look at, there's, there's all these sort of famous cases of 18-year-old women, 16, 17, 18, 19-year-old women who have like one tablet of MDMA and they drink a gallon of water and they uh, they die. You know, they have hyponatremia, which is low sodium, and then they have seizures and they die. And one of the things I'm curious about, and they're all women, not men, by the way. And I don't, I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, I, you know, I know that women and men metabolize MDMA differently. I know that this fluid retention is a really big deal with MDMA. It's worse in women than it is in men, and it's worse in women who are premenstrual. And it may be that if you look at, you know, where these women were in their menstrual cycle, it may be that many of them were in this premenstrual phase. So yes, MDMA can cause fluid retention. So you don't want to drink too much water, but in the research setting, it is a non-issue. No one is chugging a gallon of water in the research session. And the other thing that's a non-issue is, is overheating, you know, dancing for hours on end, not taking breaks, overheating, not being able to cool off, not being able to drink any water. MDMA can put you at risk for heat stroke in that situation. But in the therapist's office where you're lying on a couch, you know, with eye shades listening to music, there's just, there's no risk of hyperthermia. There's no uh, clinically significant increase in core temperature. Um, it's just not an issue. Yeah. I guess I'm wondering what other differences exist between that recreational MDMA experience and the medical one too, because I, I do think part of the recreational MDA experience is, um, you know, it is often used in, in raves or festivals and there is that sense of community uh, and I, like the dance, like the dancing that can be such an exhilarating experience. Um, and, and, and so I think that's part of the healing that comes from. MD I, yeah, I totally think so. I, I absolutely think so. And I actually wrote about this a little bit in good chemistry because, uh, back in the day I went to raves, um, and I remember that really heady feeling of being on the dance floor and feeling like, you know, these are my people and we are all sort of one organism and you can get into this kind of group mind thing. And I think everybody's listening to the same music. They're dancing to the same rhythm. Things can get pretty sort of synchronized, you know, heart rates can get synchronized with music. Brain waves can get synchronized with each other. There's all sorts of interesting physiological synchrony that happens when you get a group of people together, listening to the same music, you know, clapping their hands together, chanting together. You're sort of, you get entrained and synchronized mm-hmm. and that feeling you feel like you're part of something bigger than you. So again, like that is therapeutic. Just having that sense that there is something bigger than you that contains you, that is therapeutic. So I absolutely, uh, I had, you know, ever since the eighties, when I first learned about MDMA, I have been, I have been sort of talking about and writing about and thinking about this issue of therapeutic versus, uh, recreational. And the thing I always say is let's start by at least agreeing that recreation is therapeutic. That the very act of, of dancing, of smiling, of feeling joy, feeling freedom, 
being in your body, moving around, feeling good, not being uh, self-conscious, not being embarrassed. Like all of that is already therapeutic. Can we at least cop to that? And the community as well, you know, going to a festival, yeah, going to it, feeling that you belong. And I know you have a whole chapter on feeling connected to community, feeling connected to communities or feeling like you're part of the world. So, so I guess I'm just wondering how, how can we, you know, obviously this medical research is so critical and so important, but I guess I have some apprehension when I think about just taking MDMA personally with like an eye shade all by myself. Right. Right. I do. I do too. It's funny. Where I feel so connected to like friends and family and, you know, everyone on the dance floor and what, what might be missing in that medical model? Well, I'll tell you, you know, what's interesting about the eye shades is I think honestly what happens a lot of times is people start off with the eye shades and the, and the music and they lie down on the couch, but at some point they rip the eye shades off and they pull off their headphones because they want to talk and they want to connect. And, and, you know, in, in Michael Midhoffer and Annie Midhoffer's work, um, they are a therapist pair that did a lot of work with people with post-traumatic stress disorder, and they're they don't stay with their eye shades for very long. You know, they mm-hmm. they want to talk. They want to they want to talk about what they're thinking about. They want to talk through their trauma and how they feel about it. So, um, you know, I think with psilocybin, there is more of this. Uh, nonverbal that you do just want to go in and the music guides you and you have visions, but you're not doing a lot of talking and connecting. But MDMA, you really, and it's partly because of that methamphetamine base. Uh, people's dopamine is up, their their oxytocin is up, they want to bond, they want to trust, they want to connect. And, and because it's sort of a speedy methamphetamine cousin, there's a push to talk and a push to connect. It, it, that's, that's sort of like a dopamine gas pedal that, that pushes things along. But I hear what you're saying, that that it is missing that component of you know feeling connected to everybody on the dance floor. But I would say is what it's replaced with is a feeling of connection for the therapists who are working with you and, and something very important called a therapeutic alliance. Um, a therapeutic alliance is one of the few things that can predict whether psychotherapy is going to work or not, whether somebody's going to get better or not, is how strong the therapeutic alliance is. So that same lovey feeling that you get at a rave where you feel totally connected to everybody, um, you will get that for your therapist pair and also for yourself, right? You will feel, you will love yourself. You will accept yourself. And really crucially, you will accept the fact that this terrible trauma happened to you. You will, dare I say, love the fact that this trauma happened to you. You will accept it. You will embrace it. You will connect with it. You will bond with it. And you will not push it down and reject it and push it away. You will integrate it into your entire narrative and say, yes, this happened to me. It made me who I am. I'm stronger because of this. I'm not going to push apart. I'm not going to blame myself. I'm not going to reject this part of myself. I'm not going to keep pushing it down. I'm going to accept it, integrate it, have some level of what's called equanimity, you know, an open hand, not pushing it away, not grasping, not clinging, just accepting that it's there. You know, if, if you can have that kind of acceptance of yourself and your history and your trauma, that's that's the bonding, right? You know, you're not, you're not like locking eyes with somebody on the dance floor and smiling and grinning and being like, like, I see you, you know, mm-hmm. but you are having that with your own history, with yourself, with your caregivers, the, mm-hmm. the therapist pair. So um, you still get that sense of connection, but, I, but I, it's not the group mind, that amazing heady group mind that you get at a rave. Right. And I think, you know, on the flip side, in the recreational model, you aren't necessarily in that there's so many distractions around if you're taking MDMA at a rave or at a festival. So you're not really necessarily going to be confronted headfirst with your trauma. That's not the intention. That's not the focused experience. So 
Um, yeah. So, so I think both, obviously I think both models, you know, make sense in differing ways. Yeah. Uh, so I want to, I also really want to talk about kind of this integration with, um, you know, within our communities. And, and I think we can have these really powerful experiences with psychedelics, but then after the experience, so we might come back to the same family system or the same, you know, the partnership. Right. right. Um, and, and you talk about, and I think there's two sides of this coin because you do talk about how some patients use MDMA and then they're able to facilitate and create positive change in their relationships. But I'm sure there's the other side too, where someone, you know, comes out of a changed person and they can no longer be the enabler of the family or they can no longer tolerate certain dysfunction. Um, yeah. So what are, what are kind of your thoughts around that post psychedelic, um, integration? Yeah. It's crucial, right? It's, I mean, and, and integration is a very big watchword now in, in the psychedelic psychotherapy space. You know, we're all talking about, okay, great, you've got this, you know, uh, wonderful list of new things that you've just figured out, but how are you going to put them into your daily life? And how are you going to, you know, walk the talk? Um, and that's where you really need like therapists who specialize in integration, who can help you figure out what to do with these messages, you know, that you just got. Um, so it, and in, and in the, in the maps MDMA protocol, there are hours and hours of integration therapy built in after every MDMA assisted psychotherapy session, there are multiple integration sessions before the next MDMA session so that you have a chance, you know, it's almost like if you take a huge bite of something, then you have to chew it, swallow it, digest it, poop it out. Like that's all the integration, you know, mm -hmm. you're going to, you're going to take the nutrients and you're going to get rid of the stuff that doesn't work for you, but it's a process, you know, you don't just like bite and then it's in your body. So there's, there's this, all this processing that has to happen after you've had these huge big bites that you have to chew and digest and figure out where did I just go? What did I learn? And how can I put that into changed behavior and growth, you know? So you can't do it alone. You really need somebody to help you integrate and, and process all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And do you have any guidelines in terms of people making shifts in their lives, like immediately after the psychedelic experience? I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's cases of people who, you know, they do it, they do it on Monday and then on Tuesday they're getting a divorce. So do, do you have any guidelines in terms of waiting or letting things settle back in before making any big life shifts? Well, I definitely think that it's good to let things settle and, you know, let the dust settle. I mean, it, uh, and somebody who's never had any of these experiences, it can, it can be a lot to sort of integrate and figure out. And, you know, it's a, it's a really big deal experience and you shouldn't, I, I wouldn't want anybody to, to rush around and, and make a lot of life changes, uh, without sort of, you know, doing this integration work and figuring things out. Um, you know, we, when I was at Bellevue, we had a guy once brought in because he was on the street, uh, giving away his wallet and his watch and taking off his clothes and proselytizing, you know, that everybody needs to get rid of all their possessions. Um, and these are things that he had figured out in the middle of a, of a psychedelic experience, um, at, at, uh, at the chapel of sacred mirrors, which is honestly a pretty altering place. If you just even go there sober, like the art is, is pretty intense. So it, it um, you know, as he woke up at Bellevue, uh, you know, in a, in a patient's pajama gown with, you know, no wallet, no ID, no money, no watch. Um, you know, I, I imagine he had second thoughts about his behavior at that time. And, and, <laughs> you know, obviously you need to, you, 
it, it is this really big, you know, I talk, I talk in, in good chemistry about these people who felt, who were, who had horrible depression and then they had these psilocybin experiences that lessened their depression, but then they went right back into their lives and got depressed again. So you knew, you do need to make some changes, um, but they, you know, they need to be made sort of slowly and not all at once. And hopefully un, under the supervision of somebody who can advise you about, you know, what makes sense and what's healthy and, and what's like too much too soon. Mm-hmm. And my final question for you is, is how would you like to see the future of psychedelic medicine evolve? And of course, you know, we are in this research and trial phase, but, but beyond that, um, how do you think these medicines could best be regulated and used? Uh, and I'm also wondering what, what do you think the role psychedelics could play? Uh, obviously, we, you know, we've touched on this throughout and you touch upon this so much in the book, but we are in this crisis, um, of, of climate change and within our, our planet. So, so what, what role do you think psychedelics could play in creating shifts in our world? So I'll answer the second one first, and that and that is that you know I definitely uh, present data in in good chemistry and and all the notes for this book by the way are online if you if you go to drholland.com there's a huge note section but uh, in good chemistry and in the notes section I I report that there is definite like definitive data that people who have psychedelic experiences are more likely to be environmentally conscious environmentally active um, and also, interestingly, less likely to engage in domestic violence. So the other thing that we're seeing now more and more is is less narcissism and less sort of exploitative behavior around narcissism. So when when you talk about my hope for the future, it is right there. It is right there in exploitative narcissism that uh, (laughs) if people can have experiences where they are more open, where they are more compassionate, uh, where they get that we're all in this together and we all have to help each other. And, you know, this sort of dog eat dog, you know, I got mine, you get, you go and get yours kind of uh, mentality. It's not really how we're meant to be living. But, you know, the other issue, it, it's all so much in its infancy, right? What's going to happen right now, it's just research and underground. And eventually there's going to be something that isn't underground or research. It's going to be that it's available. And then the big issue is, who is it available to? Is it only going to be rich people because uh, it costs so much money and insurance isn't going to pay for it? Or is it going to be available to people, the people who really need it the most, who are the marginalized people, who are the people who have been sort of shut out and outcasts, who maybe don't have a lot of money, who maybe don't have good insurance or uh, you know, can't pay for the stuff out of pocket? Like We really need to pay attention to how are we going to bring this medicine to the people who need it most, which mm-hmm. right now are the people who've had it the least so far. So um, I'm, I am interested in, in actually the whole kind of insurance reimbursement issue also. And how can we potentially get insurance to pay for something? Because there's no question that this is more cost effective in the long run to have, to have somebody have one or two, you know, four to six hour deep experiences as opposed to taking medicine every day for 20 years. And seeing a therapist once a week or twice a week for 20 years. Like it is efficient, it is effective, it's cost effective. At some point, insurance companies uh, in a perfect world would start to reimburse for this sort of procedure the same way they would reimburse for somebody to have anesthesia with their surgery, you know? Because if you don't have anesthesia with a surgery, the surgeon probably can't get out everything they need to get out because you're thrashing around or running running off the table. So, you know, right. I I do look at psychedelic assisted therapy a, a bit like anesthesia during surgery and that it it allows you to sort of 
be open enough um, and willing enough to go to go within to really look and, and find those little malignant pieces that need to be removed, that need to be identified and removed for the healing to happen. Um, you know, good therapy takes years and years and years, and it happens in fits and starts, and people get a little bit better and then they get worse or they run away. You know, you got too close to something and you don't hear from them for six months and then they come back and you spend months just getting, you know, figuring out, uh, you know, what happened in the last six months and you get caught up, but you, you're not going any deeper. Like, good therapy takes years and years to really go deep and get down to where you got hurt and figure out what sort of defenses you created around getting hurt and and can we can we just get rid of all of that stuff you know mm-hmm. so um these are catalysts for behavior change they're catalysts to let the therapy go deeper and be more efficient and more effective and so uh you know one of my visions for the future is that these medicines are available, that they are not prohibitively expensive. Maybe that means that we do things in groups instead of individual, right? The way it's set up now with research is you've got two clinicians for one research subject, and those clinicians spend eight hours with the person. This is untenable from a medical point of view. You, you know, you're never going to be able to pay for eight hours of somebody's time or two or two people's time for eight hours. But if it were in a group setting, and there were, you know, eight or ten research subject, or, you know, subjects or clients, I guess, at this point. Uh, and there could be one person just sort of making sure everybody's okay, or one person and a helper. But it doesn't have to be like two highly qualified, uh, you know, MDs, PhDs, RNs. Like at some point, we're going to have to either open it up to uh, cheaper people doing it or more people doing it at once, so mm-hmm. that it it just can be more sort of cost effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the more people, um, you talk about that in the community chapter as well, when you have multiple people involved, you know, that helps with the integration and, and feeling the belonging post psychedelic experience. Yeah. Right. And you definitely, you know, there's a great model for this in ayahuasca circles, right? Where you may mm-hmm. have like 10 or 15 or even 20 people in a room and you've got one shaman and maybe one helper or two helpers and, uh, and it works, you know, the people, everybody has their own sort of internal experience. And then the next morning they process it with everybody else. And then maybe the next night they do it again. And, you know, over the course of two or three days, they've got two or three sessions, two or three processing sessions. It's a lot of change that can happen in three days. Mm-hmm. So, um, I do think that's a reasonable model. I think the group model, you know, traditionally in, in indigenous cultures and things like that, these were medicines that were taken in groups or honestly, what happened more often than not was that the shaman would take it. Nobody else would take it, but the group would still cohere. Now mm-hmm. what we have is everybody taking it and, and the shaman does also. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Holland. I really appreciate yeah, your time and sharing all of your knowledge and, and wisdom with us. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It will help other people find us. Cannabis Science Today is so generously supported by the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public on scientific research findings on cannabis. If you're interested in donating to this cause or sponsoring an episode of this podcast, where we research a scientific research question or theme of your choice, please contact us through agriculturalgenomics.org.